Today the question is, what will you do with the truth? It is a personal question. It is addressed to each of us. And the question is this, what will you do with the truth? Here's the deal. You can accept it and you can receive it or you can deny it and you can reject it. That's what you can do with the truth. When the truth is presented, you can accept that truth, you can receive that truth, or you can do the opposite. You can deny that truth and you can reject that truth. But here, here's the thing. You can't be neutral. You can't do both. Actually, the reality is, if you are not for the truth, you, by definition, are actually against the truth. And so the question is, what will you do with the truth? Now, you can't stand in the middle. There is no middle ground. Now, today, if you watch the news, if you watch our culture today, the ideas of moral relativity and political correctness and tolerance today teach us that you can be neutral. And that's what, that is what is taught today. Political correctness. You know what? You can be neutral. You can stay neutral. Tolerance is the idea that you should stay neutral. In fact, let me just tell you, it is deemed today as more intelligent to be neutral. That's what our world teaches. For sure today, it is taught that it is more loving to be neutral. And it is a high virtue for a person to be able to say they are neutral, to claim neutrality. Now, the problem is this, you can't do it. Where I grew up on Route 2, Granny used to say, the only things in the middle of the road are dead dogs and dead chickens. Make up your mind. Well, the question is, what will you do with the truth? Now, let me, let me say this as we, as we begin the discussion. Let me, let me tell you this. There is a great paradox concerning the truth. Now, it's not a new thing. We see it today, but it but really has existed for all time. There is a great paradox concerning the truth, and that is this. On one hand, the truth is right, and the truth is good, and it's pure. On one hand, the truth sets us free. We are, we are saved by the truth, and only the truth do we have salvation. On one hand, we need the truth. We die, we perish for an absence of the truth. And so on one hand, the truth is marvelous, and the truth is our salvation, and we need the truth. But on the other hand, the world hates the truth. You see, that doesn't make any sense to me. I can't understand that the, the truth is what sets us free. The truth, Jesus is our hope, but the world absolutely hates the truth. Listen, let me tell you today, be sure of this. We see all these things happening in our culture today. Be sure it's an attack against the truth. That's what it is. You say, well, what are you saying? What are you talking about? When the world says that any abortion is good, that any abortion is okay. It is an attack on the truth that every life is valuable and created in the image of a living God. It is a hatred. It's an attack on the truth. When the world says that there are different ideas 
of marriage and those different ideas of marriage, they are, they are okay. And, that, and the people say, who are we to restrict today how people are gonna love one another? Listen, it's really just an attack on the truth. The Bible says God created them male and female. Male and female, he created them. And the man was to leave his father and his mother, male and female, and cleave to his wife. Listen, it's just an attack on the truth. Today, look at our nation when, when racism divides us and racism is allowed to stand and, and when we wink at it, we even laugh at it, be sure it's an attack on the truth. The truth is there is but one race, the human race, and there's one blood that runs through all of us and it's an attack on the truth. You see, God makes no distinction and neither should we. And so understand, the world hates truth. The world absolutely hates truth. Truth. There has always been an attack on the truth. Well, again, the question comes back then, so what will you do with the truth? Will you accept it and receive it, or will you deny it and reject it? You cannot be neutral. The question today is this, what will you do with the truth? Today in our study of the Gospel of Luke, we're going to see very clearly the world's response to the truth. And really, it's just this same paradox lived out. We're going to see the world's vile hatred of the truth. Our message today is entitled, The Hated Truth. The Hated Truth. We're in Luke chapter 23 this morning, looking at verses 1 through 12. Luke chapter 23, today verses 1 through 12. I'm going to ask if you would, if you'd stand with me in the reverence in the honor of the reading of the word of God. Luke chapter 23, beginning here in the first verse. Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ a king. So Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. When Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time. Now, Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time, because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there, accusing him vehemently. And Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come today and I'm thankful for the truth thankful for the truth of God's word, thankful that we can hold it, that we have it, 
that we can study it, that you speak through it. I'm thankful for the truth of that word, Jesus. Thankful that the truth stands and the truth does set us free and there's salvation in the truth. Lord, I pray that we would be agents of the truth, that as the church we would be defenders of the truth, that we would be ambassadors of the truth. Lord, I pray if there's some here that do not know the truth, that haven't heard the truth, that in the influence of this church, in the preaching of this message, they might hear the truth today. Lord, I I pray rejoicing in a Savior who endured all of this that he might buy me back from the debt of my sin. I rejoice in a Savior so gracious and so kind. Lord, may I be impacted by the truth. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We worship you. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Today in our study, we continue looking at the case that is being made against Jesus. The case that will result in his execution on the cross of Calvary. Now, understand that this is the actual case that is presented against Jesus. These are the the things, the, the charges that are presented that will actually result in his death, his execution on the cross of Calvary. Now, if you remember, Jesus has been arrested there outside the Garden of Gethsemane. He is also being taken from there, and he's been before the former Jewish high priest, Annas, who is probably really the most powerful man in this entire plot. And, and really, as the, as the former high priest, he still holds his clout and probably perhaps is the most powerful man in this whole plot to kill Jesus. From there, he has been taken before the current high priest, Caiaphas, who happens to be the son-in-law of Annas. And then last week we read that Jesus is taken as the sun comes up before the Jewish ruling council, the 71 men of the Sanhedrin. And so Jesus has endured this all in the course of this night. He has been before the Sanhedrin, this ruling council, and presented and had his case presented there. Now remember so far, the case against him has always been his claims his claim to be the Son of God, his claim to be the Christ, the Messiah. Remember all the way back to Luke chapter 4 when we started. He says, these prophecies have been fulfilled in me. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. Well, those are the charges that are brought against Jesus, that he is the divine Savior of God. Remember before the Sanhedrin, in chapter 22, verse 67, the Sanhedrin, these 71 men say, If you are the Christ, tell us. They want to make it plain. If you are the Christ, then tell us. Well, he answers in verses 70 and 71. And they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, yes, I am. Then they said, what further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Jesus clearly states here, He is the Messiah. He is the one. He is that one. He is the fulfillment of Scripture. He is the fulfillment of prophecy. He is the promise of God himself. He is the Savior. Jesus is very clear in that. I was watching this week a video of an Islamic or a Muslim debate, and a a Muslim teacher there was, was, was teaching at the microphone, 
And he says that he has read the Bible. In fact, it seemed that he was very proficient in the Bible. And he said Jesus was never clear in that claim. Somebody asked, what does he say? He's the son of God. And he says, well, there are many sons of God. Jesus was never clear in that claim. Jesus says here, yes, I am. Jesus is very clear who he claims to be. Yes, I am. Now that brings us to chapter 23. And I want you to watch as we move through these 12 chapters here, the treatment of the truth. And that's really what this is. The handling of the truth. The treatment of the truth. And that's what we're going to see unfold in our verses. Beginning here in verse 1, it says this. Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. Now I want you to see the picture Here are these 71 men. Here are their servants. Here are these that are tagging along. And the whole body of them got up and brought one man, him, before Pilate. This is, again, the Jewish ruling council. They hear his words. And then the Bible says the whole body of them got up and they brought him before Pilate. Now understand this. Pilate is the Roman governor of Judea. He lived in Caesarea. He didn't live in Jerusalem. A city named in honor of Caesar. Caesar, Caesarea. He is living in a city that is built for the worship of Caesar. That tells you his mindset. He for for sure normally would not have been in Jerusalem. Maybe just this one time a year. But because of the Jewish holiday of the Jewish event going on, the the historians would tell us the population of Jerusalem would increase tenfold. And so the population would would magnify, would, would multiply as these folks came in for the Jewish celebration. And so because of these huge crowds, he goes to be there. Now I want you just to think about this. He oversees the region. Because of this big event in the region, He goes to this event. Understand, he cares nothing for the Jews. He cares nothing about this Jewish holiday, but it is his job to keep Caesar, Caesar Tiberius, happy in the Roman relationship with the Jews. And so as the leader of the area, there's a big event in the area. As the one that's to keep peace, he goes to the event. Now understand this. He's there for that reason, But the Jews, why do they come to him? The Jews proceed to Pilate because they do not have the authority to put someone to death. Only the the, the Roman government could sanction, could give the authority to put someone to death. And so they leave their Jewish council, they leave their, their Jewish court, and they seek out Pilate. Now before we move on, I want you to notice something here. Do you see, and we're going to see it several times, how perfect the timing of this is? Really, really if if we're not careful, we'll miss that. Do you see how perfect the timing, the events of this week are? Remember on the Jewish side, the final Passover lamb, Jesus, comes and he presents himself in Jerusalem where the holiday takes place, where the observance takes place, and he comes during Passover. 
How, how, how specific is that? The, the final Passover lamb, the lamb that taketh away the sins of the world. He steps down and he comes to the altar of the cross and the Passover lamb comes during Passover. Do you see how specific that is? But, but look at this. On the worldly side, the only few days that they could have secured an execution were these days. They would have had to have gone to, to Caesarea. They would have had to catch Jesus another time. It would be very improbable. The only few days, by the world's account, that this could have happened were these few days. God's timing is perfect. Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. Verse 1 again. Verse 2. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Verse 2 says, And they began to accuse him. Now, accuse translates to make accusation against, to bring a charge against. It is to prosecute. And so now they are making their charges against Jesus. It says this, they began to accuse. Now the, the, the verb tense in the original language is ongoing. And so what that means is it starts, but it is ongoing. It is a continual siege. It is a continual onslaught against Jesus. And so, and so they begin and they start the assault against Jesus. They bring the charges, but they continually bring the charges against Jesus. Now here are the charges here. Remember they heard him say that he was the Messiah? Remember they said, that's enough for us. We need no other testimony. Listen to the charges they make against him here with Pilate. The first charge is this. We found this man misleading. It means taking into a bad direction. We found this man misleading our nation. Now what they're saying here is that we found this man starting a revolt, starting a rebellion against the Roman government. We found this man misleading our nation. Well, that's not what he was doing, was it? He was saying that he came as the Savior. He was saying he was the fulfillment of Scripture. He's the Messiah. He wasn't trying to mislead a nation. He wasn't trying to lead a revolt. They start off by slandering this man, Jesus. They start off by slandering this man. The second charge is this. And forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar... They're saying he is leading the people to not pay their taxes. For sure he is leading a revolt. He is telling the people, don't pay your taxes. This is not our government. Rebel against the government. Do not pay your taxes. That's what they accuse him of. Remember in Luke chapter 20, when they ask him, and they're actually trying to set this up, should we pay taxes unto Caesar? And remember that, remember that count in, in Luke 20? They, they asked that question, and Jesus responds this. Give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. He said, yes, pay your taxes. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? By all means, it's his, give it to him. By all means, yes, pay your taxes. Understand, 
This is a straight up lie. This is an opposite teaching or, 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 or thing that Jesus has said. It's a lie. I think it's interesting here. If you look at the context, these Jewish people hated Rome. They, they hated the authority of Caesar. They wanted their own king and they rejected his authority. These Jewish people, they, they hated these taxes all the way through the gospels. They hate the tax collectors. Why? Because they hate these taxes. And so we see these men here today, they are liars. They are frauds. They act like they're defending the tax system. They act like they care about Caesar and his system of government. They are liars and they're frauds and they're speaking complete lies. The third charge is this. And saying he himself is Christ a king. Now that's a very deliberate addition of words. Jesus said he's the Christ. Jesus said, yes, I am. Are you the Messiah? Yes, I am. And he's saying he is Christ, a king. Now understand this. Pilate cares nothing about Christ. He thinks it's a superstition. He thinks it's silly. He pays no attention to that. He cares nothing about anybody who claims to be Christ. But they're sure to say here that he is saying he is a king. Now, what they're insinuating, they're saying that, that he is setting himself up as king. Remember, they knew there's no king but Caesar. He rules. There's only one king. But they're saying he is claiming that he is a rival of Caesar. He, he, he refused that in the book of John. But they're saying here, he is saying he is, he is a king. That He is to replace or supplant Caesar. He is claiming to be king. Now, I want you to notice this. I want you to get this this morning. It is a, a big deal, I believe. Here is a fraud. Here is an act of slander. Here is a lie. And here is a half-truth. Notice that's what you have there in that verse. Here's a fraud. Here's an act of slander. Here's a lie, a complete lie. And here is a half-truth. And that is what they offer as their charges against Jesus. That is what they roll out as their charges against Jesus. I want you to get this this morning. Listen to me. When you have the truth, the only way to oppose it is with a lie. I want you to see that when you have the truth, the only way to oppose it is with a lie. Do you see that? The only way to contradict the truth is with a lie. There is no compromise. There is no middle ground. You can't be neutral. It's either a lie or it's the truth. And when you have the truth, the only way to oppose the truth is with a lie. Let me tell you this. I want you to hear it very clearly. When you have the truth, the only other option is a lie. And people, if this God's word is the truth, and if Jesus, God's Savior, is the truth, all other options are a lie. Do you understand that? All other options are a lie. To deny the truth is to embrace the lie. 
that just seems reasonable. That seems like it just makes sense. But listen, our, our world doesn't understand that. When somebody comes along and says, you know what, there may be other ways to be saved, and I can't talk about those other ways. I do know this way. When they say there's other ways to be saved, you know what, they're of a lie, and they're against the truth. When somebody comes along and says, you know what, some of this book I can't believe and some of this book I can't explain and it doesn't make sense and it seems like science contradicts part of this book and they start to attack the Bible, listen, they are of a lie and they're opposed to the truth. People say, you know what, that's not smart. Ooh, that's not smart. People say, that's too narrow. I've heard that. That's too narrow. That's, that's not tolerant. That's not tolerant. God can do what he wants to do. And if he's doing something different somewhere else with a different people, he can do that as well. That's not tolerant. Sorry, friend. By definition, if it's not the truth, it's a lie. Boy, that sounds judgmental. That, that sure sounds hateful. That sure sounds arrogant. Sorry, friend. To deny the truth is always to embrace a lie. There's no middle ground. Verse 3. So Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. Now, I think it's interesting here. He doesn't care about the Messiah claim. That's a superstition to him. He doesn't really care about the tax revolt. You see, he's got soldiers to enforce that. And so he doesn't ask about that. He says here, so are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says this, it is as you say, a, a saying that's, that's hard to understand. It literally translates this, you're saying it. Are you the king of the Jews? You're saying it. That's Jesus' response. Verse 4. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. In the Gospel of John, there is recorded there the discussion that takes place between Jesus and Pilate. But Luke, for whatever reason, skips the discussion and he just jumps straight to the finding. And it says this, that Pilate comes out and to the chief priests, these instigators, but also to the crowd, to those in the crowd as well, he says this, I find no guilt in this man. He comes to the crowd, he comes to the chief priests, I find no guilt in this man. Now, he is talking about the charges that they have made against Jesus. He has listened to their charges, he has looked into the matter, he has weighed it out, and the conclusion is, I find no guilt in this man. There's no reason for any of this. I find no guilt in this man. Oh, I want to tell you, I hear that, and I want to jump up, and I want to say, of course you don't. Of course you don't. This is Jesus. This is the perfect Lamb of God. This is the sinless Lamb of God. This is the one who never sinned. This is the one that though he existed as a man and though he was tempted in every way as a man, he never sinned. And as he stands here before Pilate and he stands here before this crowd, he's beaten already. He's mocked already. He is humiliated. He's abandoned already. He's rejected already. And Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. Listen, and it's because there was none. And I hear that and I want to stand up and say, he has no guilt. He's the perfect sinless lamb of God. I want to shout on his behalf. 
until I remember the perfect Lamb of God stands awaiting my sin. You see, the truth of the gospel is this. Because he doesn't sin, he can take my sin. Because he doesn't sin, he can take your sin. Because he's never sinned, he can take the sins of the world. I'm the guilty one. I'm the one that sinned. He's not guilty. And I want to stand and I want to shout in his defense until I remember it's my sin that's going to be placed on him. It's my sin that he becomes. And so he stands as the perfect sinless Lamb of God without blemish, ready to go to the altar. And the testimony of Pilate is this. I find no guilt in this man. The lamb is spotless. Verse five. But they kept on insisting, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. It says they, keep in, they kept insisting. This means they're more urgent with their pleas. They're really, it translates, more violent in their accusations. They, they keep insisting. Stirring up the people means shaking up the people. They're saying, you know what? He is leading an insurrection against Rome. I find no guilt in him. He's leading an insurrection against Rome. Kill him, kill him. He's stirring up the people. Kill him. Verse six. Starting from Galilee, even as far as this place, verse six, when Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. He hears that sentence and he says, is he a Galilean? Is he from Galilee? Now see this. Herod is Herod Antipas. He is the son of Herod the Great. We're about to, we're about to read about him. The Bible says he is the Tetrarch. Now what that means is he is the ruler over a quarter. So the, the Roman Empire here, this part of the kingdom, is divided up. And Herod is the ruler over Galilee. That is the region that Jesus is from. Now it's an interesting thing. Herod is considered a Jew from his bloodline. His bloodline, he has, he has a Jewish heritage or a Hebrew heritage, but he has aligned himself with Rome. He has aligned himself with Caesar. And he has been given this area to rule over in Galilee. Now understand, he also is in Jerusalem because of the Jewish festival. He's also there because of the holiday. Be sure he really doesn't care about the Jews. Actually, he despises them and he despises their ways. Now, he has decided to act like that, to act like he's for the Jews, is to have this footing with Caesar. He is given this spot to represent Roman government with these Jewish people. So that is his tie-in and that is why he is in the city of Jerusalem. Now, I think it's interesting. Herod Antipas is a descendant of Abraham and Isaac, but his lineage comes through Esau and not Jacob. 
And that's kind of an interesting thing here because remember the two brothers in conflict, it said their lineage would stay in conflict. In fact, it said the sword would always be in the midst of them. And so we see here, here is a descendant of Esau as he stands over the Messiah, the descendant of Jacob. He has authority over him. But you know what the Bible said way back then, that the younger, the older would serve the younger. And so here he is and he thinks he has this clout and he stands over the descendant of Jacob. Listen to verse six. Verse seven. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself was in Jerusalem at that time. So it just explains it. When he heard that he belonged to to Galilee, he was a Galilean, he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time. See the timing again. Herod lived in Galilee. In fact, he built a great city named Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee, named in honor of the, the, of the Roman emperor, of Caesar. And so he was only there for these few days. Again, see God's perfect timing. Verse 8. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him, was hoping to see some sign performed by him. Now, the verse eight says, he sends him to Herod, who is also in town, and it says that he had, he had, Herod had heard of Jesus. He was glad to see Jesus. Now, probably many, many times, he had heard of Jesus. He hears of the miracles in the region. He hears of his teaching, the signs and the wonders in the region. So probably many times he'd heard of Jesus. Now, I think it's also interesting, Herod Antipas had killed John the Baptist. And one of the rumors about Jesus was that he was the reincarnation of John the Baptist. And so so now, don't you think it makes a lot more sense? Oh, I've heard about this. I've heard about this, these mighty acts, and, and they say he's the reincarnation of John the Baptist. I'm glad to see him. He's glad to finally meet Jesus, but it's not to find out the truth of Jesus. It's not to discern the truth, to hear the truth of what Jesus says. He really just wants to see a sign. If, if this is who you are, then let me see a sign. If, if this is who you are, do some, some tremendous act. Heal somebody if this is who you are. He really just relegates him to the, the role of a magician. Oh, I'm glad to see him. I've heard of these acts. Let him do something for me. Like many folks, he wants to see Jesus based on false ideas. You know, a lot of folks want to see Jesus, but it's not the true Jesus. A lot of folks want to see and receive something from Jesus, but it's not the true Jesus. Well, he has the same impression. Oh, I'm glad to see him. Let him do a sign or a wonder in my midst. Verse 9. And he questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. He questioned him at length. It was a full interrogation. And I can't even imagine what this was. Who are you? Who are your parents? Where did you come from? Why won't you do something? We've heard these things about you. Is that really true? Is that what you've been teaching? Are are you really the Christ, the Messiah? I can't imagine all the questions. Tell us about yourself. Why don't you do something? Do you see the danger you're in? 
Jesus is silent. Seven hundred and something years earlier, Isaiah the prophet wrote this in Isaiah 53 verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet did not open his mouth. Like a sheep before his shears is silent, not a word. That has to infuriate, Herod. Do you know who I am? Do you know who my dad is? Do you know my contacts with Caesar? That has to infuriate Herod. I'm asking you a question. Answer, answer, answer. And he sits there and he's silent like a sheep before his shears goes. Not a word does he utter. Not a word. He stands there in silence. Verse 10. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there. The silence is killing them. Accusing him vehemently. Understand this. If he gets off... The chance is wasted. If he gets off, the opportunity's gone. And so he stands there in silence and there's an impasse and they start to accuse him and they start to shout out. Verse 10 again. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. Verse 11. And Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt, and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Treating him with contempt. If you look that up, in the original language, it translates this. In the Greek language, it means this. They set him to naught. It, it means this. They counted him as a zero. They counted him as a zero. They looked at the Savior of the world. They looked at the perfect Lamb of God, the Lamb without blemish. He looked into the eyes of the Lamb of God and he counted him as nothing. Isaiah 53 says... And he was despised, and we did not esteem him. In Hebrew, it means this. They gave him no value. 700 years, they despised him. They esteemed him of no worth. They gave him no value. That's in Hebrew. Now here in this court of Herod, they count him as a zero. They give him no value. Bible says they put a robe on him. It must have been one of Herod's own robes. They would have had nothing else that would have been that majestic. And so most likely they take one of Herod's own robes and the mocking robe of a distant cousin is placed on Jesus. The Bible says, and they sent him back to Pilate, counting him as worthless. Verse 12, now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. Read the, read the account here, read what's going on, see the context. These two giant egos, 
These two men, they must have been in conflict as they ruled these neighboring areas together. They, they must have been in conflict as they, as they fought to have the ear of Caesar together. And so they, the Bible says, were enemies. And so he sends Jesus there in jest. He sends him there as a joke. Oh, the, the, the head of Galilee's here. Well, let's send him a king. Let him try an important case. And as a joke, he sends him to Herod. And Herod sends him back in jest. Oh, he's so important. Look at him, the, the ruler of Judea. Let him try a king. He is so important. Let him try a king. And so he puts a king's robe on him and he sends him back. And all of it is in jest. And they count him as a zero. The zero is sent back. In jest. I've noticed this. Hatred of the truth will unite strange bedfellows. You ever notice that? Hatred of the truth will make fast friends of vile enemies. And you'll find somebody and they can't stand each other and they hate each other and they're against each other's throat. But when they have a common cause of the hatred of the truth, they will bond together. And here are these two giant egos who are making fun of each other and have looked into the eyes of the Lamb of God and esteemed him not and counted him as a zero. And they become fast friends, the Bible says, on this very day. Friends, the question this morning still stands. What will you do with the truth? What will you do today with the truth? It's an individual question. It's not for somebody else to answer. What will you do with the truth? The truth, the Bible tells us, Jesus tells us, is himself. And so we can, we can put his name in there. What will you do with Jesus? That's the question. What will you do with Jesus? Will you accept him? Will you receive him? Or will you deny him and reject him? But I want you to understand today, there is no middle ground. You can't stay in the middle somewhere. You can't say, I'm trying to weigh it out. You can't say, well, my environment taught me something different. You can't try to be neutral. If you're not for the truth, you're buying into a lie. What will you do with Jesus today? What will you do with Jesus? He came and he didn't sin. There's no guilt in him. What will you do with Jesus? He goes and he takes your sin, and he takes my sin, and he bears it all, the shame of it all, the, the filth and the rot of it all, and he bears it all to the cross. What will you do with Jesus? On that cross, he dies, and the full payment for sin is paid. The wrath of God is poured out on him. That's what the cross is about. What are you going to do with Jesus? They take him down from that cross. They pull him from the cross and they, they wrap him in the clothes of a grave and they put him there and he is dead on the slab there. The payment is made for sin. What are you going to do with Jesus? And three days later, he walks out of that grave. Listen, on Easter Sunday morning. And hallelujah, the, the, the payment is received. And death forever has been defeated and the grave is robbed and the king of kings stands and the risen savior, the Lord, is there and he's defeated it all and he stands in victory. What are you going to do with Jesus? And in tremendous grace, he offers it to you. 
a sinner such as you, a sinner such as myself, no work of our own, nothing we can do. We can't get cleaned up enough in our despair, in our hopelessness, in his grace. He offers that to you. I died in your place. I settled it for you. I stand as the risen Savior and I offer it to you. What are you going to do with Jesus? Believe it. Receive it. Accept it. Or deny it and reject it. As you walk out of this room today, understand there is no middle ground. What are you going to do with Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come. And I, I read this account, Lord, and I am astounded at your plan. I'm astounded at the perfection of your plan that pieces all the way back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Esau. The perfection of your plan that who's in town at the right day. The perfection of your plan that the, 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 the real final Passover lamb steps in when the people are trained to look for a Passover lamb. And I'm astounded at your grace and your mercy shown to me. I'm astounded as they put a a robe, a, a robe on him and send him back and count him as not, that as I stand and I want to I fight against that, that I have to understand it's my sin that you stood there for. It's my shame that you bore. Lord, I, I praise you for that. I thank you for that. Lord, I pray for some in this room that do not know what to do with Jesus. And maybe it's because they haven't heard the truth. I pray that today in the hearing of the truth, they would side with Jesus, Lord. Maybe it's because they've become inoculated. They've grown numb to the truth of Jesus and the noise of the world. They've become deadened to it. Lord, I pray that it's fresh again today. Today might be the day of their salvation. Lord, I pray for some of us here today, maybe many of us as believers, that we still get to answer the question daily, what are we going to do with Jesus? Are we going to herald the truth and defend it, proclaim it, embrace it, be shaped by it? Will we walk around in numbness and in silence denied? Lord, I pray for a movement of, of God today. I pray for a movement in, in the hearts of men today. I pray in seeing this picture of Christ that we couldn't stay the same. I pray for some that need to make decisions that today would be that day, Lord. Pray for all of us that we would draw closer to you. We submit this to you and we tell you we love you and we worship you and we praise you. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.